You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. But Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. God in heaven, we come at this time and we come in the name of our Lord Jesus, praying that you would teach us this morning that you'd save sinners and sanctify your church. We pray that your spirit would be present through the preaching of your word and that our Lord would be greatly honored. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So we're looking at the fourth commandment on this morning. And we're well into a series on the Ten Commandments. The, the Ten Commandments are a body of law distinct from the judicial and ceremonial law of Israel. And so the judicial law was specific for Israel. The ceremonial law was specific for Israel. But the Ten Commandments are God's abiding moral and natural law for all time and for all people. It's the standard by which he judges the world. And it's the standard that he expects all of us to uphold. It is natural law as opposed to positive law. Natural law meaning that it is the very, it is the very nature or the constitution of the universe is, is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the constitution of creation. And so they're written in creation itself, whereas positive law are the laws that God enacts uh, as they pertain to various covenants. They come and they go. So the Old Testament sacrificial system was positive law, and then it came and it went. In the New Testament, we have ordinances. For example, we just saw baptism. That's positive law. It's just here for these new covenant times. It wasn't around in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. But the natural law of God is that which transcends time and space, and God expects all people of all time to uphold it. That's the Ten Commandments, the natural law. It has abiding authority today. And today what we're looking at is the fourth commandment. We've looked at the first commandment, we've looked at the second commandment, we've looked at the third commandment, and now we're in the fourth commandment. In fact, last week we were in the fourth commandment also. This week we're in the fourth commandment. Next week we'll be in the fourth commandment, and the week after that we'll be in the fourth commandment. So we've got four weeks on the fourth commandment. And the reason I'm spending four weeks on the fourth commandment is because there seems to me that there's a lot of confusion surrounding the fourth commandment. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered there's a lot of stones that need to be turned over, a lot of things that need to be unearthed, and so that's why I've chosen to spend so much time on this fourth commandment. And so last time we were together, when we looked at the fourth commandment, 
I gave you an argument from Scripture as to why it still has abiding authority. I was on the offense, and so I gave you an offensive argument, I guess you could say. And so I tried to convince the doubters and the skeptics that this is a scriptural commandment, and today I'm on the defense. And so today I'm giving you a defensive argument. So there's all kinds of objections to the Ten Commandments, and I'm trying to summarize those commandments those objections today are at least to the fourth commandment and defend against those objections in this morning's sermon. Next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain why under the old covenant for Israel, the Sabbath was on the seventh day and under new covenant, New Testament times, it's on the first day. So that'll be next week. So some of you have asked me about that. Well, just come to next week's sermon. And then the final week, in the fourth commandment is going to be about application. So it's really three weeks heavy on teaching. So I hope you brought your thinking caps today because it's, it is heavy on teaching. Some, sometimes throughout this sermon, I wonder if your eyes are going to be tempted to glaze over, and I'm going to call you out if they do maybe, but, uh, but you got you to stay with me through this. We're, we're wading through some, some boggy mires, I guess you could say, and I'm trying not to get lost in the trees and keep the forest in sight. But uh, there are some things that need to be unearthed as we go through this. So this week, as I'm answering the objections to, to you know, people come and say, well, we, should, we don't need to obey the Sabbath anymore. We don't need to have a day of rest. We don't need to have a day of worship anymore. Because these are new covenant times, right? And so they have all kinds of reasons for why they say that. And today I'm going to deal with those reasons. Now... I'll give you some pastoral caution, and this is what I've been telling you each week as we've gone through, as we started going through each one of the commandments, and that is this, that the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, are searching. They search your hearts. They're like hound dogs hunting after the little creature, and they're going to try and corner the creature or tree the creature, and the creature that the hound dogs are coming after is your sin. And so the Ten Commandments are coming after your sin, and they're needling around in your heart. So you will inevitably receive conviction and you'll have a sense of guilt as we go through this series and, and shame. But I don't want you to stay in your guilt or stay in your shame. When you feel guilt and shame, run to Jesus immediately. My objective, objective in preaching the Ten Commandments is not that you leave church feeling guilty and ashamed of yourselves. No, my objective in preaching the Ten Commandments is that you leave church thanking God that you have such a wonderful Savior who'd forgive a sinner, sinner like you. So you want to leave church today and every day, especially as we go through these series on the Ten Commandments, rejoicing over how great of a Savior that you have. Yes, your knowledge of the fact that you're, you're a sinner, but you immediately move from your guilt and shame for your sin to the salvation that Jesus has already purchased for you on Calvary's cross. So that's what I hope that you do today. And then beyond that, you got to take the law of God and it has to become a rule for your life. You respond to the law of God with obedience, not because you're trying to earn your salvation, that's already been purchased for you in Jesus Christ, but because you're responding to the salvation that Jesus has already given you. Jesus saved you, Jesus has forgiven you, your guilt is gone, you've received full pardon for your sin, and so you respond to that by seeking to live for the Lord. Wonderful thing that this Savior of ours has saved us. And you respond by seeking to make His law the law of your life. So, here's my outline today. Here's my outline. I'm answering four objections. So I say, we have a Sabbath in New Covenant times, and then people come and they say, but, 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 no, 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 no. Here's four objections. So here's the four objections that I'm going to answer. One, Jesus' use of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Two, Jesus' Sabbath controversies. Three, the Apostle Paul and what he says on holy days in Romans 14, Galatians 4, and Colossians 2. And then four, the reference to rest and Sabbath in Hebrews 4. So, you'll, the points will come on the screen, but we're going to jump around a bit this morning. So you're going to be jumping around in your Bible a little bit today. Jesus' use of the law in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sabbath controversies, the Apostle Paul and his mention of holy days, especially Romans 14, Galatians 4, Colossians 2, and 
the reference to rest and Sabbath in Hebrews 4. So there's my, my four, the four objections that I'm going to answer this morning. I trust you to your satisfaction. Let's look at the first objection, and that is the use of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' use of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. So some people will say, well, Jesus did away with the law in the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's what we're going to pay attention to as I answer this first objection. If Jesus was a, wasn't a Sabbath keeper, then we don't need to be a Sabbath keeper. If Jesus did away with the law in the Sermon on the Mount, then surely we can also. Now, I preached extensively on the Sermon on the Mount several years ago, Matthew 5, verse 2 to 7, verse 27. I, I spent well over, I think I spent well over a year in those two chapters or three chapters. And I went to great lengths. One of my objectives in doing that was to thoroughly demonstrate that Jesus was not here to overthrow the law of God as far as his moral law goes, but he properly taught the law of God contrary to the Pharisees who completely botched their teaching of God's law. So you had the Pharisees who did an awful job of teaching God's law, and Jesus did the perfect job. He was the perfect expositor of God's word. And so I went to great lengths to do that. But I'm going to do a little bit of review in this first point from those sermons years ago. Some will argue, I'll be in Matthew 5, looking at this, so you can turn there. I think you'll want to. Some will argue that Jesus did away with the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, in the Sermon on the Mount because of what he says. So they go to the Sermon on the Mount and they, look, Jesus did away with God's law. And I'll show you what, what the common, I guess, objections are. And if you look at Matthew 5, verse 17, this is what it says. He's just come through the Beatitudes. And I, when I preach on the Beatitudes, by the way, you can go back to those sermons or go back to your notes. I showed you that the Beatitudes, for the most part, are just Jesus repeating verses from the Old Testament. So if not most of the Beatitudes, all the Beatitudes, I think, but for sure most of them are actually just direct quotations from the Old Testament, okay? But he gets to the Beatitudes, and then he gets to verse 17. And in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now that little word, fulfill, there, People come to that word and they say, look, see, we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. They're not in force anymore. They, they were temporary. And so all the debate here is around the word fulfill. What does the word fulfill mean? Well, I'm not going to tell you what it means today. I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean. Because I already told you what it mean, means years ago, if you want to go listen to that. But I'm just going to review and I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean. And then what I'm going to do is I look at Jesus' use of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to examine his but I say unto you statements. So there's multiple but I say unto you statements. He'll quote the law. He'll say, you have heard that it was said. And then he'll quote the law. And then he'll say, but I say unto you. And so people go to those and they say, see, he replaced the law. He's, he quotes the law, but then he gives you a new law. Right? So I'm going to look first at verse 17, and then I'm going to look at the but I say unto you statements. But let's look at verse 17. When you slow down, you can see very clearly what Jesus is not doing. Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, see what he says? I have not come to abolish them. So whatever fulfill means, it doesn't mean abolish. Right? Jesus came to fulfill the law, but he didn't come to abolish them. So, however you define fulfill, it doesn't mean he abolished the law, because he didn't abolish the law. It says it right there. And then he goes on in verse 18. And he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So, fulfill does not mean Jesus abolished the law. Fulfill does not mean that the law has passed away because he just said it's not going to pass away. And then, verse 19, further, fulfill does not mean we get to relax the law. Look what it says in verse 19. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what does fulfill mean? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. Fulfill does not mean the law is abolished. When Jesus says he fulfills the law, it doesn't mean he's abolished the law. Fulfill does not mean the law is passed away. He fulfilled the law, but the law is not passed away. We see that in verse 18. And then fulfill doesn't mean that we get to relax the law because he just said it in verse 19. In fact, fulfill is wholly consistent with doing and teaching the law because the second half of verse 19 says, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So whatever fulfill means, it doesn't mean the law is abolished. It doesn't mean the law is relaxed. It doesn't mean the law has been done away with or passed away, and it is consistent with the law being done and the law being taught. So hopefully we can kind of put that argument to rest, and we can move on from it. But within this Sermon on the Mount, there's also all these, as I said, but I say unto you statements. This happens again and again. So in verse 22, in verse 28, in verse 30. 2, 34, 39, 44, Jesus says, but I say unto you. And, and what he does when he says, but I say unto you, is he, he quotes in the Sermon on the Mount a commandment. And then he quotes the commandment, the law, and he says, but I say unto you, this is what you should do. Dot, 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 dot. Well, and when he does that, he's not replacing the law. He's interpreting the law, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean. In verse 27, he quotes the seventh commandment. So he says in verse 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, we've, we've all heard that commandment before. That's the seventh commandment. We'll get there in our Ten Commandments series eventually. And then he says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So some people will come to that and say, See, he did away with the Ten Commandments. He says, it's not, he's, I, but I say, or you, you've heard it said, you don't have to, you can't commit adultery, but I say now it's, now it's the heart that the commandment applies to. Well, no, that's not what he's doing. He's applying the commandment to the heart. So the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, still stands, but what he's doing is, if it's wrong, he's saying, if it's wrong to commit adultery, it's also wrong to want to commit adultery. It's not enough that you just don't commit adultery. You actually have to get to the point where you don't want to commit adultery. You don't want to sin sexually. This is the problem people have. And this, by the way, is the problem with all, this, all these homosexual arguments, right? These people say that I was, they were born that way. Well, you're born with the desire to sin, and you have to do away with the desire to sin. Right? The Bible doesn't say it's not just enough that a man shall not lie with a man, but it's actually a perversion to desire it, is, the, is how you properly apply the law. And in fact, when Jesus does this with the seventh commandment and he does this with the other commandments as he does with um, murder or, or what have you, what he does is, he's, what he's actually doing is he's taking the tenth commandment and applying it to the seventh commandment. So what's the 10th commandment? You shall not covet, dot, 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 your neighbor's wife, right? What's the 7th commandment? You shall not commit adultery. So how do you apply the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, to the 7th commandment? Well, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife in your heart to commit adultery with her. So what he's saying is completely consistent with the 10 commandments because he's taking the 7th commandment He's taking the 10th commandment and he's bringing them together so that you have not just the prohibition of adultery, but you have the prohibition of adulterous desire. There ought not be the desire to commit adultery, the lusting after another woman. It shouldn't happen. So I hope we can put that argument to rest too. Jesus does not do away with the law in the Sermon on the Mount, despite what some people say. Jesus properly interprets the law in the Sermon on the Mount. And he properly interprets the law in the Sermon on the Mount in an age where they weren't properly interpreting the law. 
The Pharisees' problem was that, yes, they were religious conservatives, but no, they did not interpret the Bible properly. They were conserving a false religion. This is why conservatism is not enough, because the Pharisees were conservatives, but they were conserving a religious formalism that was devoid of the Holy Spirit. And in conserving a religious formalism that was devoid of the Holy Spirit, they started misapplying the letter of the law. And they would twist it and play all kinds of sophistry with it so that they could make it say all kinds of crazy things. Which brings me to my second point. My first point was, or my, my first point, or, or subheading, or heading of my sermon was, Jesus uses the law, Jesus' use of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Does that negate the fourth commandment? No. My second point is Jesus' Sabbath controversies. So I'm going to talk about the Sabbath controversies that Jesus enters into. And you can flip over to Matthew chapter 12. We'll look at two of them, one of them in a little more detail than the other. But flip over to Matthew chapter 12. As we look at Jesus' Sabbath controversies, and, and does Jesus' Sabbath controversies mean we don't have to have a Sabbath in the New, New Testament time? Well, the Gospels, the four Gospels, record seven times that Jesus was embroiled in Sabbath controversies, seven that I can count, best of my knowledge, seven times. There's a few parallel accounts between the Gospels, and if you count those parallel accounts, there's seven times. They record seven times Jesus was embroiled in Sabbath controversies with who? The religious leaders, the conservatives who were devoid of the Spirit of God. They had no, their knowledge of religious things was simply tradition. It wasn't grounded in Scripture or in the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, which are consistent. You need Scripture empowered by the Spirit of God into the heart. Well, these guys had an exterior formalism that was that was cold and godless. And so Jesus enters into Sabbath controversies with them. However, despite what some say, he never violated the Sabbath in these controversies. In these controversies, he consistently upheld the Sabbath, but what he did violate were the standards of the religious leaders. That's what he violated. They had their traditions he violated their traditions, but their traditions were contradicting God's teaching on the Sabbath. So he did not violate the Sabbath. He violated the traditions of the religious leaders and provoked them. So most of the Sabbath controversies, with the exception of one, deal with healing on the Sabbath. And in one of them, it's, there's a, it's about a guy who carries his mat on the Sabbath. That's easy to answer. I'm not even going to talk about that one. And the Pharisees get mad because the guy's healed and his only earthly possession is this little mat that he has on the ground. He picks it up and he carries it on the Sabbath and the religious leaders just lose their minds over it. Well, you can understand why that is not a Sabbath violation, hopefully. But what I'm going to deal with is the ones in, two ones in Matthew 12. And first one I'm going to look at in verse 9 to 10. I'll take a look at verse 9 to 10, or verse 9 to 14, sorry. And Jesus enters into a synagogue, and he enters into this synagogue to provoke a debate over whether he can heal on the Sabbath. So verse 9, he went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why did they ask him that? So that they might accuse him. So this guy's got a withered hand, he's got no hand, it's all withered up, and they're all watching. Is Jesus going to heal the guy in the synagogue on the Sabbath? And they're waiting to pounce because they want to, let's get Jesus, right? And what he does is he answers them in verse 11 through 12. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value of, is a man than a sheep. He's making an argument from lesser to greater. You take care of your animals on the Sabbath. Why wouldn't you take care of people? And then he says, he concludes, what does he conclude? So it is lawful, verse 12, to do good on the Sabbath. And healing is good, so it's lawful to 
do good on the Sabbath. So, so what does Jesus do here? He doesn't violate the Sabbath when he heals this man. He says in verse 13, he heals him, miracle of miracles, right? Stretch out your hand and Jesus heals him. He doesn't violate the Sabbath. He argues with the Pharisees to tell them that he is the proper, he, he's interpreting the Sabbath law properly and they're interpreting it improperly. Because what's his words? Jesus' words. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He's not saying the Sabbath is not lawful. He's saying it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so this is the Sabbath controversy. And then, of course, this provokes them in verse 14. They don't want to debate him anymore. And this is when they start conspiring to kill him in verse 14. Well, the second Sabbath controversy I'm just going to touch very lightly on without going into the text is in the text that comes before this one. It's a little more complex, but... Essentially, what is going on is Jesus' disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. And they're famished. They're starved. Like, they're really hungry. Very, very hungry. Because they haven't eaten in a while. And they start plucking off heads of grain and putting them in their mouths. And, of course, the Pharisees react to this. And they, they lose their minds. How dare you violate the Sabbath by eating something that you picked out of a field on the Sabbath? And they, they go nuts. And in, you can read the text on your own, your own time, but in the text, what Jesus does is he makes two Old Testament references. He takes the Pharisees back to the Old Testament, and he gives them two Old Testament references to show them that they are the ones interpreting the Sabbath wrong, and he is the one that's interpreting the Sabbath right. So in both instances, you've got the one with the healing. Most of the Sabbath controversies Six out of the seven Sabbath controversies pertain to healing. And Jesus makes the argument from the Old Testament that it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And then one out of the Sabbath controversies deals with picking heads of grain while they're walking and they're famished. And they put the grain in their mouth and the Pharisees accuse them of violating Sabbath. And what does Jesus do? Well, he gives two Old Testament references in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12 and declares himself Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one that instituted the Sabbath because he is Christ Almighty, the one who created the heavens and the earth. So what do we have in these Sabbath controversies? We have not Jesus breaking the Sabbath. No. No. We have Jesus properly interpreting the Sabbath with some religious conservatives who'd botched it. And what does this teach us? Well, it teaches us that Jesus is the superior Bible expositor. It teaches us that conservatism is not necessarily right. Just because you're conserving something doesn't mean you're conserving the right things, right? And it teaches us that Jesus is still the proper upholder of God's law. He was the one who upheld God's law perfectly, and he did so on the fourth commandment which is the commandment that pertains to the Sabbath keeping. So I've dealt with two objections to the fourth commandment, to my plain application of the fourth commandment. I've dealt with two objections. The first objection was Jesus' use of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. The second objection is to Jesus, is the objection of Jesus and the Sabbath controversies. Now here's the third one. The third one is the Apostle Paul on holy days. So the Apostle Paul does a little bit of teaching on holy days. You're going to have to wade through the weeds on this one with me for a little bit. But I'm going to try and boil down my analysis of, the, of these three Bible verses. But you'll have to really wade through the weeds on it. And I'm going to look at three verses, and then I'm going to generally deal with all three of them at the same time, and then I'm going to deal with the third verse specifically near the end of this section. But the three verses I'm going to look at, you can put your fingers there in your Bibles so you can have them at hand, are Romans 14, verses 5 through 6, Galatians 4, verse 9 through 11, and Colossians 2, verse 16 through 17. I'll say that one more time, and then we'll get into the Romans 14 passage. Romans 14, verse 5 through 6, Galatians 4, verse 9 through 11, 
and Colossians 2, verse 16 through 17. I'm going to deal with the first two in general, and then I'll deal with the third a little more specifically. But let me read these three passages for you so you can hear what the issues are. Romans 14, verse 5 through 6. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks, gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what people do is they come to this and say, see, see, Paul didn't think you have to honor the Sabbath. Why? Because he's okay with some people esteeming one day above another and some people not doing that. Paul doesn't care what you do. Uh, with your time on the Sabbath day or on the, you know, as far as the fourth commandment goes, he's not concerned about it at all because some people esteem one day over another and others don't, and that's totally chill with Paul. And the other passage is like it, very similar, Galatians 9, verse 10 and 11. And it says, But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, now, can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. So people will come to that passage in Galatians and they'll say, well, look, these people are observing times in the Jewish calendar and Paul's making reference to it and he's saying they're going back to slavery because they're wanting to abide by the Hebrew calendar again and employ the Sabbath day. Slavery of slavery. So how dare we teach on the Sabbath day? How, we, how dare we tell people to set aside a day for worship and rest? And then you go to one more passage, and that's Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. And it says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So people will come to that and say, look, see, it's, you're not supposed to let people pass judgment on you as it pertains to a Sabbath, so you don't need to honor the Sabbath. And these are just shadows. The fourth commandment was a shadow of Christ. So don't worry about that now, and don't trouble yourselves over these things. Well, let's, let me make a few observations. First observation is this, that Scripture is not going to contradict itself. And so I gave you a bulk of evidence in the, last, the first two sermons in the series on the Ten Commandments, and then even in last sermon as to why the law of God has abiding authority, the Ten Commandments have abiding authority. And so either all that evidence has to be interpreted in light of these passages, or these passages have to be interpreted in light of all that evidence, one way or another. Okay? So, but we'll have to figure out which is best as we wade our through, way through these weeds. Another thing that we need to keep in mind is that if, let's say if, the Apostle Paul is forbidding certain days of weeks of the week being set aside for religious services, then that's what he's forbidding. And he's not going to tell you at other places in his epistles to set aside days of the week for religious services. Because if that's what he's forbidding, that's what he's forbidding. However, if you go to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul tells us to meet on the first day of the week to take up an offering. And if you go to other parts of the Scripture, that people were meeting on the first day of the week for worship. But we'll look at 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so, also, or so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. So what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians is he's saying the pattern throughout the churches is that you gather on the first day of the week, and when you gather on the first day of the week, you're bringing in a collection. So he, there's something distinct about the first day of the week because he's telling them to gather, and this isn't a commandment that's specific for Corinth. Because Paul tells this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, but he also says in the passage, is I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. So the texts at hand, 
You know, whatever Paul's telling them to do in 1 Corinthians 16 has to be consistent with what Paul's telling them not to do in Romans 4, Galatians 4, and Colossians 2. So can we set aside time for worship or a day for worship, or can we not set aside a day for worship or a time for worship? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 that you have to set aside this time for worship. It's on the first day of the week. He's specific about the day of the week, and he tells us what's going to happen on it is the collection. And then there's a host of other passages in the New Testament that we'll look at next week where it talks about the church gathering on the first day of the week for worship, the breaking of bread, fellowship with one another. So what's going on here? And I'll explain to you what's going on here. If you look at the passages in question, the Apostle Paul's teaching on the holy days in Romans 14 and Galatians 4 and Colossians 2, each one of those texts, this just you know, come out of your fog if the eyes have rolled back under your head at this point, because it's going to hopefully make sense. Each one of those texts overwhelmingly emphasizes that we do not enforce the ceremonial law. Eating, drinking are pulled about, talked about over and over and over again in the texts. In Galatians, Paul talks about circumcision, which was part of the ceremonial law under the Old Testament times. And in Colossians, mention is made of the Jewish celebrations, the food, the drink, the festivals, and the new moons. And so the context of each one of those three passages in question, Paul's teaching on the holy days, the context is overwhelmingly dealing with ceremonial law. And so in each one of those passages within the context, Paul is telling them not to enforce the Hebrew ceremonies or the Hebrew food laws because those no longer stand and we ought not pass judgment on one another. So they had, they had interesting times in the Old Testament, or the New Testament rather. The churches would all come together and within the churches, you had Jews and you had Gentiles. And under this new dispensation of Jews and Gentiles coming together, there was conflict, you could imagine. And one of the things that the Jews within the churches wanted to do was enforce their ceremonies. Galatians was about this, the circumcision. The Jews wanted to enforce the circumcision in the church. Okay? And then in, in Colossians and, and in Romans, Paul is dealing with the fact that they want to enforce the festivals and the ceremonies and the food and the drink laws. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Look, if some people want to participate in those things, don't judge them. And if some people don't want to participate in those things, don't judge them. Because we're in a new dispensation where the positive law of the Old Testament has now disappeared. And we're only under, and in this dispensation, the natural law remains, as I've argued in the previous sermons, but the positive law of the Old Testament is gone. And what do we have now? We have the positive law of the New Testament. Not the festivals, not the ceremonies, not the food laws. We have baptism, we have Lord's Supper, and a few of those positive laws that are temporary laws that pertain to the covenant. But the natural laws remain. The natural laws remain. Now, having said all that, I think that answers the question about Romans 14 and Galatians 4. And by the way, Romans 14 and Galatians 4 don't mention Sabbath at all. So I think that should satisfy your mind on those. But what about Colossians 2? Because if you're in Colossians 2 and you look at verse 16 and 17, Sabbath is mentioned. So the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. That's you know, Colossians 2, verse 16, and then verse 17 says, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. A few points on this as we look at this word Sabbath here. Sometimes one word can mean something different depending on context. And in English, we have this, right? There's words in the English language that are the very same way. It sounds the same, and sometimes it even can be written the same on paper, but it's a completely different word, right? And, and they're called homonyms often. And the Ten Commandments, or the, the, the Bible is the same way. So, for example, the word law in the Bible, it can be used to refer to the Ten Commandments. It can be used to refer to the entire Old Testament. 
It can be used to refer to the Levitical sacrificial system. It's, it's, it's the same word, but it's used to describe different things, and you determine that by the context. The context helps you determine that. And that's what's going on here, I believe, in Colossians 2. There's different uses of the word Sabbath in the Bible. It's not just the fourth commandment. There's different uses. And I'll give you a few of the uses. For example, in Leviticus 3, or sorry, Leviticus 23, Sabbath is used to describe ceremonial celebrations outside of the fourth commandment. So it's used to describe the 15th day of the first month. In the Hebrew language, it's in, in the in the in your English translations, it will be ordinances or holy days or something like that. But in the Hebrew, it's using a very similar root word to Sabbath, a very similar word. Leviticus 23 talks about the first or the 15th day of the first month as a Sabbath. Leviticus 23 talks about the first day of the seventh month as a new moon and a Sabbath. Leviticus 23 says the tenth day of the seventh month is a Sabbath. Leviticus 23 says the eighth day of the Feast of the Tabernacles is a Sabbath. Leviticus 24 says that there is a Sabbath year. Leviticus 16 verse 31 tells us that the Day of Atonement is a Sabbath. And they're all called holy or they're often called holy convocations in the English translation, but it's a very similar Hebrew word for Sabbath. The very same consonants you find for Sabbath are found within that word. And so it would be nothing for Paul as he's talking about all of these different ceremonies no longer applying and all of these different food laws no longer applying and, and the tradition, the Jewish tradition of the circumcision no longer applying in New Testament times. It'd be nothing for Paul to employ the word Sabbath within that context in reference to the Jewish ceremonial calendar. And say, look, there's no longer a thing. Because we're not under that anymore. And so I believe in Colossians 2, when he's referring to Sabbath, we read it within the context of, what does it say in verse 16? The food and the drink, the festivals, the new moon, or the Sabbath. All of those, food and drink, festival and new moon, are ceremonial celebrations. The only one in question is Sabbath, and he doesn't clarify which Sabbath he's talking about. He doesn't clarify whether he's talking about the Sabbaths in Leviticus 23 that I just mentioned, or the Sabbath in Leviticus 24 that I just mentioned, or the Sabbath in Leviticus 16 that I just mentioned, or the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20 that is the fourth commandment. He doesn't clarify which one he's talking about. He just leaves it general. And so because of everything else that we've learned about the Sabbath, which is a lot, as I've argued that it's natural law, not positive law, and with the context of Colossians 2, I think it's safe to conclude that what the Apostle Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2 is not, he's not saying the fourth commandment no longer stands. What he's saying is, is these ceremonial Sabbaths of Leviticus 23, Leviticus 24, Leviticus 16, which are not the fourth commandment, they no longer stand because they've all done, been done away with as positive law as the Old Testament positive law has come and it's gone. Paul does not specify which Sabbath he speaks of, but within this context, it is the Jewish festivals, the ceremonies, and the food laws. So as Walter Chantry said, I think he sums it well, up well, he said, it is apparent that these three texts are describing ceremonial and judicial laws of Moses, not the fourth commandment, but rather the ceremonies. The ceremonies are all rooted in Jewish history, whereas the fourth commandment is rooted in what? creation that makes them distinct. Fourth commandment's rooted in creation, the Garden of Eden, and all the ceremonies are rooted in Jewish history. So what have I done in this sermon to summarize so far? I'm going to do one more quick point on Hebrews 4, but I'll give you a quick summary of where I'm at. I've dealt with three objections to the abiding authority of the fourth commandment. The objection that Jesus' use of the law in the Sermon on the Mount contradicts the fourth commandment. The objection that pertains to Jesus and the Sabbath controversies. And then finally, the objection that the Apostle Paul speaks on the holy days. And when he's speaking on the holy days, he's referring to the fourth commandment. Let me deal with one more objection, and it'll be quick. It's not a big one. And that's in Hebrews 4. You can turn there if you'd like. Look at two verses, but 
can read the whole chapter later if you want. But the reference, there's a reference in Hebrews 4 to rest and Sabbath. There's a reference there to rest and Sabbath. And the question is, is what is, what is the author of Hebrews talking about in this context? Hebrews 4 verse 9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now some will come to Hebrews 4 and they'll say, oh look, that means that the fourth commandment is no longer valid because we're resting in Christ. And it's just pointing us to Christ, so it's, it's no longer valid. However, what they fail to note when they say that, that the rest, is that the rest in Hebrews chapter 4 is not speaking of a present rest that we have in Christ. It's speaking of a future rest. It's all about the future in Hebrews 4. And so, for example, even in verse 9, which we looked at, what does it say? So then there remains a Sabbath. It's still to come. Or if you go down to verse 11, what does it say? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. In other words, we're not there yet. We have to strive to get into it. So what's this all talking about? Well, if you look at Hebrews 4 in context, what it's talking about is rest in this instance is not talking about us resting in Christ through his justification that comes by faith. We believe in justification by faith. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the fact that when we finally die and get to heaven, we will rest from all the toil and trial that we have on earth. That will be our final rest. We'll, we'll literally, we die, we give up the ghost, we'll literally rest in peace is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's not talking about the Sabbath. He's using the Sabbath not as part of his argument, but as an illustration of his argument. So that he's saying, look, just like you rest right now on the Sabbath. In fact, Jonathan Edwards comes to Hebrews 4 and he uses it as an argument to bolster his belief in Sabbath abiding by the fourth commandment. Okay? And so when you, it, what he's, what he's, his reference to Sabbath is he's comparing heaven to Sabbath. You work all week, and you get to rest on the Sabbath, and you're going to work your whole life, and then finally you're going to die and give up the ghost, and you're going to rest forever. And so really, if Hebrews 4 is anything, I think it should bolster our belief in the Sabbath. Why? Because it's a little foretaste of what's to come. What a joy that God's given us one day in seven to experience a little taste of what we're going to do for all eternity which is enjoy the presence of God and worship him and bring him much glory. Thomas Schreiner comments on Hebrews 4, and he says this. The author declares that those who enter the rest promised by God rest from their works. Clearly, human beings only cease from works or activity at death. And that's specifically what he's talking about. So let me summarize, and then I'll, I'll close my sermon. What have I dealt with today? I've dealt with four objections to the abiding authority of the fourth commandment. Jesus' use of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' Sabbath controversies. The Apostle Paul's reference to holy days and Sabbath. And then finally, four, the reference to rest and Sabbath in Hebrews. I think that as it pertains to Sabbath... I think we have a lot of work to do as far as recovering this glorious teaching of Scripture. It's been something that's been greatly and grossly neglected. And it's something that hasn't been taught properly for several generations now. And we need to fix and we need to repair what's been lost. It's interesting as you get to the book of Nehemiah. And what do they do in Nehemiah? They come back to the city and they start rebuilding the wall. And the law of God is open. And what's one of, the, one of the first things that the people realize after the law of God's dusted off and they want to bring about a religious revival in Jerusalem, one of the first things the people are convicted of is their Sabbath violations. And they bring back their Sabbath teaching and they bring back worship and they, they bring back the assembly of God's people. And this has been neglected grossly. As I said last week, before you had the breakdown of marriage, you had the breakdown of Sabbath because they're both rooted in creation. Before you had the confusion between gender, you had the confusion between days. Both are rooted 
in creation. And before you lost the dignity of man, man being distinct from creation, you lost the distinction of days. Why? They're both part of creation. In creation in Genesis 2, God distinguishes one day from six. God distinguishes man from woman. God distinguishes man from beast. And God distinguishes married couple from everybody else. And you lose one distinction, the dominoes start to fall. And before all of these other great concepts were lost in the hearts of the people, it was Sabbath that was lost in the hearts of the people. And some of you come to Sabbath and, you, and you, the things that are going to go through your mind are like, what, what, what do I have to do and what can't I do? Those are the first question you're at. What, what do I have to do on the Sabbath and what can't I do? You've, you're asking the wrong question. You don't get it. You're missing it. Well, when it comes to Sabbath, it's what do I get to do? That's the question. Because Jesus said Sabbath was made for man. It's the day that we get to worship God. It's the day that you get to cease from your worldly labors. It's a day that you get to sit down with your family and feast. And it's the day that you get to gather with your friends and sing hymns. It's the day that you get to open the scriptures more than you get to open them any other day of the week. It's the day that the children get to put their homework books away. Right? This is all a gift. And what a glorious gift it is. And people come to, oh, that's slavery. Are you kidding me? You get to spend a day with the Lord. This is what you're going to be doing for the rest of eternity. What do you think you're going to be doing in the new heavens and the new earth? You are going to be delighting in the glory of Christ. You are going to be enjoying fellowship with God's people. You are going to be beholding the wonders of God and your heart will exult with the praise of the Lord and that is what you get to do on the Sabbath. That's what it's about. So I think the last generation that tried to uphold the Sabbath with an evangelical and reformed churches was a generation that lost it. Why? Because it all became about this is the day that we have to sit around and do nothing and be bored in our starched shirts. And that's what it came about. We can't do anything but sit on our hands in our starched shirts. That, that's totally missing it. That's, you know what that is? That's what the Pharisees did. They put a stranglehold on the joy of the Lord. The Sabbath isn't what you have to do. The Sabbath is a glorious gift of God. It's what you get to do. And I think it's high time that we start repairing what has been torn down. And we learn this great gift of the fourth commandment that the Lord has for his people that still abides for us today. We need to fix and we need to repair and we need to trust the Lord to restore what the locusts have eaten. Next week, I'll talk about why it's on the first day of New Testament times and not on the seventh day as it was in Old Testament times. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray to you and we pray you would restore what the locusts have eaten that we would learn to order our weeks and our time in accordance with what you have commanded us and that you would receive all the honor and glory. Forgive us for our violations of this fourth commandment, we pray. Show mercy towards us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.